A preacher was preparing for his lesson on Mother's Day, and he received this note from a mom in his church. Week before last, I had quite a pity party. A day that started with a half marathon became a complete marathon day from our family. My spirit went from bad to worse that day. My husband was running his second half marathon at 8 a.m. Gordy was playing his last soccer game at 8 a.m. Woody was playing his first t-ball game at 11. Gordy was playing baseball at 1.30. And then John Jr. had his last soccer game at 2. Between 9.30 and 10, we were to drive downtown, watch for my husband pass by among the crowd of thousands, and then race to the finish line to find him again. I have to tell you, before the day began, I was dreading it. As the day progressed, each hour, each game, I became more and more irritable, short-tempered, and resentful. I was busy. So I called my mom to complain, and she just told me I have my boys in too many activities. To which I replied, Mom, one season is ending, the other's beginning. I can't help it. Plus, we couldn't skip the half marathon. If I were running 13 miles, I'd want someone there to cheer for me. But I was certain I would lose one of the boys in the crowd or miss my husband as he passed by. So even with that event, it was a bit tainted. Anyway, by 4 o'clock, nobody could live with me. Nor did I want anybody to be around me. Being a mother is amazingly stressful. There are constant time demands, unrealistic media images, condescending attitudes toward mothers coming from every direction, and that creates a lot of pressure. And if we're not careful at church, instead of alleviating that pressure, we can add to the pressure that mothers face. Sometimes we leave the impression that every mother is this spiritual wonder woman. She reads her Bible every day. She prays for everyone she knows by name every day. She teaches Bible class at church. She cooks for those uh, who need a meal. She keeps a nursery every month. She never nags, never complains. She's never depressed, never worried, never sick, never selfish, never grumpy. She keeps the house clean, the lawn mowed, chores, uh, chores done, all the laundry done without breaking a sweat, without getting tired. We imagine her children sitting perfectly well in church. And they're wonderfully matched outfits. They never interrupt adults when they're talking. They always say, please, thank you, no ma'am, yes ma'am. In a book entitled Motherhood Stress, Deborah Lewis wrote this. I've talked with rich mothers and poor mothers, brand new mothers and grandmothers, mothers of one and mothers of nine, stay-at-home mothers and mothers with two careers, single mothers raising their children all alone, and happily married women with wonderfully supportive husbands But whatever the mother's circumstances, when it comes to stress, we all feel it. Today, I want to look at a mother in the Bible. Her name is Sarah. There are several of us who, for the last six months, we've been studying the book of Genesis. We're not finished yet, but we're getting there. And what we've noticed in the book of Genesis is you read a lot about mothers and fathers and siblings and family conflict and stress. It's from beginning to end. Today, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 21 at Sarah. I'm calling the series Families Under Pressure. So for the next several weeks, we're going to look at several of these families. And today we're going to look at mothers. Sarah was a mother of one child. And that one child, if you remember the story of Sarah, it came to her when she was older, much older. 
But some of Sarah's experiences, I believe, parallel the experiences of mothers today and some of the same pressure. So my goal is that when we see the pressures that she faced, men, children, that we will be appreciative of the mothers in our life. So I want you to notice, you fill in the blanks on the outline, the back of the bulletin. Number one, Sarah faced the pressure of infertility. She had no children for many years. And when God said that she would be a mother, in fact, the mother of a great nation, she had to wonder, how could that be possible? The writer of Hebrews says that she was past the age, and of Abraham said he was good as dead. That's kind of the time frame we're talking about here. But Sarah, 65 years of age, I was thinking about that. We studied it in depth. It made me wonder, who was the oldest woman to ever give birth? So I looked it up. Would you believe there's several who claim that? So I don't know that I can tell you for sure. CBS News said this. They reported in 2016, a woman in India said she could make the record book as the oldest. She was 70 years old, 70, gave birth to a son. She named him Armand, which in the native language, Hindi, means wish. The baby was the first for her and her 79-year-old husband who had been married for five decades. I know. Some of you are thinking, wow, that's something. She said this, I feel blessed to be able to hold my own baby. I had lost hope of becoming a mother ever. She underwent two years of treatment and several failed attempts earlier. But Sarah beat that. When we think of 70, Sarah was 90 years old when she became a mother. Look at Genesis 21, the first two verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Max Lucado said Sarah is the only woman in history who paid her pediatrician with a social security check. That was a long time. That's a long uh, old age to become a mother. But here's my question. What about all those years before? Not from that time of promise to when the baby came. But what about her decades before of not being able to have a child? Don't you think she was disappointed, frustrated, concerned, bothered that she could not conceive? For a woman not to have a child, for most women anyway, that's a huge pressure. That's a big deal. God has placed a nurturing instinct in the heart of most women. In a happy marriage, a successful career, a supportive family, none of those replace that desire that so many women have. So for some, on Mother's Day, it's one of the most difficult days of the year. I also looked up, according to the CDC, about 10% of women in America, 6.1 million women in America, have difficulty getting pregnant or staying pregnant. So it's not just a disappointment. They feel a pressure. And one of the pressures is age, because as you age, then your ability to conceive lessens. But there's also financial pressure because if you resort to these treatments, those are very expensive and usually are not covered by insurance. But there's also anger and depression. Now, all of us get upset when you hear about a mom who abandons her children or abuses her children, but especially that woman who wants a child, when she hears about that mother, 
We can only imagine the emotion she feels. So I think the rest of us need to be sensitive to that stress. We did a series on marriage a couple of years ago, you might remember, and we did two lessons on being single that followed that because some of the things that we do, we mean well, but we say the wrong things. Like, when are you going to get married? We talked about that. Let me add to that. We say things like, when are you going to have children? Ladies, if you are ever asked either of those questions, I'm going to remind you of what we just studied, 1 Thessalonians. Just tell them very politely, very kindly to look up 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Do you remember that verse? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. But what happens when those of us who are older say those things to that woman? When are you going to have children? When are you going to give me grandchildren? I want grandkids. You may be rubbing, irritating that wound. And you may be the last person she ever reveals that to. One couple was unable to have children, and they were asked, what are some of the hurtful things that you've heard said to you through the years? You don't know what it's like to be a mother. You don't understand because you don't have kids of your own. Too bad you'll never know the feeling of being a grandmother. Who's going to take care of you when you get older? Why do we say these things? Why do we think that's helpful? We can do better. We must do better. On our home devotionals, we're going through that very familiar, well-loved chapter, the love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. And in verse 7, it says, love always protects. Do you remember that? Love always protects. Moms understand that. Protecting is at the core of their being. Love protects. Love guards those we love, even with words that can hurt. Well, number two, look at this. Sarah faced the pressure of insecurity. So after decades of infertility, She also battled insecurity. From all that we know, Sarah's life to begin with, her marriage was good. They started off well. She married a good man. Abraham was a good man. And from all accounts, it was a good life there in Ur. Then God told Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's the way the Bible records that. God told Abraham that. But think about that for a moment. That also meant Sarah, as his wife, was also going to leave her home country and also going to leave her family. She was also giving up everything. Can you imagine Sarah explaining that to her parents? You're leaving, and you don't know where you're going, and we're supposed to feel good about this? But Sarah went along, not knowing where God was sending them. And just when things got better, things got worse. Remember the famine? The famine, there's no food, so they have to leave now where they went. They settled, now they have to leave, and they go to Egypt to get food. So if she was secure at all in this new home, this new life, now she's having to leave all of that just to survive. And if you recall, going to Egypt was not Abraham's finest moment. He fails to, as Paul said, Love protects. He failed to protect Sarah. Instead, Abraham concocts a lie. Now, ladies, if you are 
65 years of age or nearby, notice this story. Abraham realizes she's good looking. And the men of Egypt will want her for themselves. That's why he concocts the lie. Because otherwise, they would know she's his wife and they'd kill him and take her. Sarah agrees with her cowardly, and you might even say at the moment, a faithless husband, and goes along with the lie. But that didn't keep them from coming after Sarah. Life was again uncertain for her. The one that she was hanging on to, Abraham, she's separated from him. How is this going to turn out? Far from her homeland, no parents to help, no extended family. No Abraham there to help her. When, when will she just get a home of her own, a secure life, just to know she's going to wake up the next day in her own bed and she's going to live to see another day? See, we know how the story ends, and so it's hard for us to really understand the pressure that this woman was going through, the insecurity of all of that. We didn't live through those years and moments of uncertainty. Finding yourself there in Egypt wondering, how is this all going to play out? See, security for a woman is much more important than it is for a man. It is important to a man, but much more so for a woman. When a husband, for, for example, loses his job, it bothers him greatly. But it bothers his wife more. See, he can get busy trying to look for another job, but the whole time she's wondering, what does this mean and when is it going to come together? Her whole world of security is rocked. Whenever I'm able to counsel with young couples preparing to marry, I always spend some time sharing the wisdom of Willard Harley Jr. His book, His Needs, Her Needs, you heard of that? Millions have been sold. It's become like a, like a classic for relationships and marriage. He says that financial security is almost always in the top five basic needs for the wife. Security, not necessarily wealth or prosperity, but she needs to know that she can count on her husband. She needs to know that he's going to work. He's going to show up for work. He's going to get a job and keep a job dependable. He's going to do his part to bring security to the home. And husbands, we need to be sensitive to this, to do our part, everything we can to help our wife feel secure that we're doing our best Love always protects. I even share a word to teenagers. When your mom hounds you, when you are talking about the weekend plans, you know the questions that come. You get grilled. Now, where are you going? Who else is going to be there? Who's driving? When are you getting home? How much is it going to cost? All these questions. Don't feel like that's an intrusion on your independence. You be mature. You anticipate You tell her all these things so that she can feel secure in your plans and then be willing to support you in your decision. Consider these. I put these on the screen. They're not on your outline, but you might want to write them down. Top five reasons why or that threaten a security for most mothers. Number one is criticism. Criticism, especially constant criticism. It's like lighting a fire under your house. It's going to burn. Or putting a stick of dynamite under the foundation. There's going to be damage. Or number two is temper. When you lose your temper, when you lose control, when you explode, whether that's with words or or throwing things, or even worse, if you strike her, you may get beyond that heat of the moment. You may apologize. But when you lose your temper, 
That just undermines her security. It weakens the relationship. Number three is laziness. She can agree to live meagerly, to cut corners, as long as she knows her husband is also in that struggle. But when she senses he's not doing his part, when he's lazy, it's hard for her not to resent him because it just pulls that rug of security out from under her. Number four is lying. Because trust, trust is so important in a relationship. When she discovers he's been hiding things, when he's been untruthful, there goes security. But number five, and this was the most devastating, infidelity. Infidelity. Even after the husband's confessed, he's truly repented. He's doing everything he can to restore the relationship and doing everything right. It can take a long, long time for that trust, that confidence to return. Have you ever thought about Abraham and Sarah as struggling with that battle of infidelity? Sarah became so frustrated that the baby didn't happen. The baby didn't come. Supposed to come. We're talking years, decades, no baby. So she suggested, you remember the story, that Abraham take her servant girl, her servant girl, Hagar, consider her as a second wife and have a child through her. Now, Sarah was wrong to suggest that. And Abraham was wrong to go along with it. In fact, wrong to go along with it, that may be too nice of a word. Why would he ever think that's a good idea? Let that be a lesson, husbands. Your wife may sometimes say something to you, but you might not need to act on it. Like she said, I look so terrible, you just go without me. Don't go without her. That's not what she's saying. That's not what she's meaning. Listen, you don't have to buy me anything for Mother's Day. I'm good. Don't listen to that. You know, there's times where a woman might say something, but that's not what she means. When Sarah suggested to Abraham that he could have a child through Hagar, Abraham, think about it. He should have said, Sarah, no. There's no way I could do that to you. You are the only woman for me. You have been so faithful. You left your mom and dad. You didn't even know we were coming. It's been years and years. You are the one in my life. I can't look at no one else. That's what Abraham should have said. But he didn't. Genesis 16, verse 4 and 5. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarah. Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, Abraham must be thinking, wait a minute, I just did what you said. But everybody else, including us, are thinking, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Here's the truth. Nothing undermines that security, that stability, like infidelity. So husbands, we need to learn from this. It means we frequently verbalize and reaffirm our love, our commitment. You're the only one for me. I have eyes for no one else. We listen to her concerns. We make sure that she knows that. We communicate that. You've heard the saying, the best thing a man can do for his children is to love their mother. You've heard that? It's the best thing you can do for her as well. Love her. 
and let her know she's first. Love always protects. Well, here's the third. Sarah faced the pressure of child rearing. Again, back to our text, chapter 21. At age 90, Sarah gives birth to a son. Let's look at verse 1 and following. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me, she said. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet have borne him a son in his old age? Sarah is on top of the world. She's got her baby, this son of promise. She is fulfilled. She is happy. Finally, finally, Sarah is a mother. And as she says here, everybody's laughing with me. Everybody's happy. Who would have ever thought? Who would have ever dreamed? But it wasn't long until Sarah understood that being a mother is no walk in the park. As elated as it is to become a mother, it also brings painful experiences Sleepless nights, constant anxiety, and all of that seems endless. One mother with two young children wrote this. The other day, it took me over an hour to get ready to go to the grocery store. Moms, that sound familiar? We had to search the entire house to find Andrew's shoes. No sooner, no sooner had we climbed into the car, did he have to go to the bathroom again. As I buckled in Matthew into his car seat, my nose told me he was messy, so we went back inside once more to change his diaper. Then the phone rang. I talked to my friend briefly, but I felt like I was cutting her off short. Again, back out to the car. I buckled in both children, began backing out of the driveway, only to glance at the dashboard clock and realize it was nearly noon. I knew better than to attempt a long shopping trip with 200 children, so I got the kids back out of the car, headed back inside where I hung up their coats, sat down, and cried. Some days I feel as if no one notices or cares what I'm doing with my children. Other days I feel like everyone has different standards that I'm not living up to. And then she added, I never realized how much time I spent changing diapers, washing clothes, and more clothes, wiping up spills, picking up toys, driving children everywhere, pinching pennies between paychecks. I never imagined yelling at my children in frustration. It's a tough job. To rear children. Women think it's going to be the fulfillment of a lifetime, and it is, but it also brings a lot of pressure. And it's constant, constantly picking up, constantly fighting the comparison game. How's my child doing with everybody else's? All the disciplinary questions, which end of the spectrum do you listen to? And it's not long before the stress can be overwhelming. Delia Efron suggested that if you could record a mother's conversation during a typical day, it would sound like this. Don't leave it there. Take it upstairs. Is that yours? Don't hit your brother. I'm talking to you. Just a minute, please. Can't you see I'm talking? I said, don't interrupt. Did you brush your teeth? Why are you out of bed? Get back to bed. You can't watch it in the afternoon. What do you mean there's nothing to do? Go outside. Read a book. Turn it down. Get off the phone. Tell your friend to call her right back. Right now. Take a jacket. We'll take a sweater. We'll take one anyway. Get the toys out of the hall. Get the toys off the stairs. Do you realize that could kill someone? 
Hurry up, hurry up. Everyone's waiting. I'll count to 10. They were going without you. Did you go to the bathroom? If you don't go, we're not leaving. I mean it. Why didn't you go before we left? Can you hold it? What's going on back there? I said, stop it. Stop it. I don't want to hear about it. Stop it. I'm going to go home right now. That's it. We're going home. Give me a kiss. <laughs> Make your bed. Clean your room. Set the table. I need you to set the table. Don't tell me it's not your turn. Please move your chair into the table and sit up. Just try a little. You don't have to eat the whole thing. Stop playing with it and eat it. Would you watch what you're doing? Move your glass. It's too close to the edge. Watch it. More what? More please. That's better. Just eat one bite of salad. You don't always get what you want. That's life. Don't argue with me. I'm not discussing it anymore. Go to your room. No, 10 minutes are not up. One more minute. How many times have I told you don't do that? Is your homework done? Stop yelling. If you want to ask me something, come here. I said stop yelling. If you want to ask me something, come here. I'll think about it. Not now. Ask your father when he gets home. We'll see. Don't sit so close to the television. It's not good for your eyes. Calm down. Is that really the truth? I'm sorry. That's the rule. Hi, honey. Welcome home. <laughs> One little six-year-old boy said his mother prayed for him every night. Someone said, what did she say? She says, thank God he's finally in bed. <laughs> when mothers are asked... How can the people in your family help you? There's a lot of answers there, but there are two that kind of bubble up to the top. Mothers, tell me if I'm right on this. Number one, take the initiative. Don't wait until the mom has to beg for help. Open your eyes and see that the toys need to be picked up, the trash needs to be taken out, or whatever it is. But then number two, very close to it, mothers say, just simply value what I'm doing. Appreciate my effort. Don't take me for granted. Be grateful and act like it. That's why children, men, mothers can get a bit edgy on Mother's Day. Because if nothing is said, no thanks expressed, no gifts given, they feel like taking advantage of every day, taken for granted every day. And there's one day of the year where a whole country, even at church, we talk about mothers, and if you don't say something, if you don't acknowledge that, it just comes across like you are so ungrateful. The Bible says encourage and build one another up. Well, number four, think about this. Sarah pressure, dealt, dealt with the pressure of a blended family. Lest you think the Bible is full of everyone doing life picture perfect, You've not read the Bible, or at least not close enough. Genesis 21, look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. The whole context of that, there's a big celebration that Isaac was born. Everybody was happy. Well, not really everybody. Ishmael was 13 years of age at this point. He's being antagonistic. He's making fun. It was more than Sarah could take. Look at verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Abraham was caught in the middle. 
Isaac was the son of promise, but Ishmael was his son too. He obviously loved them both, so what was he supposed to do? Look at verse 12. God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of the, your slave woman. Whatever she says, to, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Let me put that on pause for a moment. Do you ever think of or remember the time in the Bible where it's Sarah and Abraham are mentioned and it says, Sarah called Abraham Lord and obeyed him? It's usually a man who brings that up. You know, the, here's Sarah calling her husband Lord and she obeyed him. And that is what is recorded in 1 Peter. But notice here God instruction. Whatever says to, Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. It goes both ways, doesn't it? For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So the family separates. And if you know the history of the world, you know this is the beginning of all the conflict in the Middle East. It starts right here. But a blended family can be a blessing. But even those in a blended family will tell you it can be a source of amazing pressure to bring these two together, especially for the mother who feels responsible for the atmosphere in the home. So this kind of goes a part of being a mom. I looked it up. According to the U.S. Census Bureau in America, only 62% of children live with both parents through age 18. The number one stress in a second marriage is the children. Parents disagree about proper discipline. Children resent that new mate, that new person that's now in the family, and they make life miserable for them. The biological parent can show favoritism to their own children. And they resent the interference from the other. That constant conflict, all that pressure, it just builds and builds. And some people don't realize, they're not willing to put the work into it that it requires because it does take work. Contrast that to a Christian man and woman in their second marriage, blended family, together four children, they were asked, it seems to be going well, why? What makes it work well for you? Here's what they said. We tried to forgive our ex-spouses and establish the best relationship with them because we don't want our children involved in controversy. And we commit to spending time with each of our biological children alone so they don't feel jealous or neglected. And we don't have unrealistic expectations of that stepchild. We know it takes time to develop. And we're making the sacrifices necessary to be supportive of the family. Children, if you live in a blended family, you need to be sensitive to both parents, but especially to the role of the mother. If you criticize her, if you fight with her, if you're antagonistic with her, if you ridicule her efforts, you're going to make her life really difficult. And you know, sometimes it may just be without thinking, you're just trying to make her life miserable, make her life pay, because your life is not what it used to be. But let me remind you, that if you are a Christian, that we are to be distinctive. Jesus said, love one another and love your enemies. Now, wherever you might put your stepmother in on that continuum, Jesus calls you the same. You love them. You pray for them. The secret in getting along with any relationship is that you be mature 
and be selfless. That's what the book of Philippians talks about, to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. Look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but also the interests of others. If you want to be like Jesus, you work at creating harmony. You let your ego out of it, and you sacrifice yourself for others. You be the one that brings joy and peace to the home. It's like no matter what we study, we always come back to Jesus. I want to call your attention to this just for a moment as we close. Because consider how Jesus responded to these same pressures. Number one, he never had children. He was never married even. So when he spoke about marriage and divorce, don't you know he was ridiculed? What does he know about being married? What does he know about being a husband? What does he know about rearing children? But Jesus was never irritated by that, by people's petty comments. Jesus was constantly a source of joy in life. And number two, he was dependable. He created security wherever he went. You could count on Jesus. You could depend on him. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never broke a vow. This is the Jesus who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Number three, he loved children. Scholars think that Joseph, his earthly father, died early on. And Jesus had to help his mom take care of his half-siblings. That's why he worked in the carpenter shop until age 30, waiting until all the children were old enough. And then he could do his ministry. But think about it. He loved children, and they loved him. They wanted to sit in his lap. Children have that radar. They know when they feel safe and secure with an adult. And that's the way they felt with him, and he blessed them. And Jesus was part of a blended family. Mary was his mother, his birth mother, but Joseph was not his biological father. And he had to relate to these half-brothers and half-sisters for years If you read through the Gospels, you realize that they weren't always on his side. They didn't always make life easy for him. But we never read about Jesus being ugly or retaliating toward them. He loved them. And eventually, they came to believe in him. Jesus is our example that we should follow in his steps And when we do that, we will make our homes the best they can be, even for our mom. You know, a few weeks ago, we witnessed Jacob Love baptizing his youngest son. And I love watching Jacob up close and Lori, the mom and dad, just just celebrating in that moment. Because as you know, as a parent, that moment when you see your child come to obedient faith, you can't put it into words. It's what you hope for. It's what you pray for. It's what you want. More than health, more than school, more than them getting married, more than grandkids, what you want is for them to believe. If we can feel that as a mom, as a dad, think how much God feels that. He wants you to believe.
He wants you to follow his son. He wants you to be his child forever. That's why he sent Jesus. So our song of invitation is to encourage you to say yes, that you believe Jesus is the son of God. Let him make you a new creature, washing your sins in baptism, giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?